Man, it is, it is so cool to see you here tonight, and man, I'm just proud that you're coming out to learn God's Word and study together, and I just, I hope God will bless you uh, for taking an evening out uh, to just dig a little bit deeper and spend some time. So, I'll tell you what, let's start with prayer, and then we'll just get right on in and, and get started. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we come to this moment, and we come because we're hungry, and we come because we, we just want to hear from you. So would you guide and direct us through your word? Would you help me to be accurate and true to what you've uh, put down and uh, do my very best not to let my own person uh, get in the way there, but instead that your word would be accurately presented and that, God, our lives would be moved forward in our walk with you. God, don't allow us to be hearers of the word. Transform us into doers of the word tonight. And this we pray in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we left off last week uh, kind of asking this question in the room because we were talking about this idea of sin, and we were, the question was, how many sins does it take to fall short? And we kind of left you with that question and uh, hope that you had pondered it for a little bit uh, during this week. What did you come up with? How many sins does it take to fall short? One. Okay, one sin. And you got you to gotta calibrate that. You need to remember that because that's going to get vital uh, in the rest of the conversation that we're going to have. And here's why this is going to be so key. The Jewish nation is living by the law. They're trying to keep the law. And yet Paul is going to come back and say, as good as you were, even in your best efforts of keeping the law, if you fell short in even one occasion, then you fell short. You would not have been good enough. In other words, the only way the law can get you to heaven is if you perfectly obey the law on every occasion in everything, which means every human being who has ever lived has failed to be good enough to make it to heaven. And this is going to be a struggle for the Jews because in their minds, they've believed that they were getting to heaven by being good Jews. And this idea, this concept is going to be absolutely revolutionary. It's one of the reasons that many of the Jewish people had such a hard time accepting Jesus as Messiah, because they felt they were good enough and they didn't need a Messiah, because they'd been keeping most of the law. The other thing is we kind of set up tonight and, and dig back in. You remember what had happened that, that Paul had come through and he said, okay, so all the heathen, because they should have known that there was a creator and someone bigger, stronger, and smarter than them, and they pushed that knowledge away, those people are guilty. And then you said the moral people who tried to put their morals and live good moral lives, but the reality is they were kind of hypocritical because they actually didn't even keep their own moral things and their own consciences convicted them of being less than moral. And then he came back in the third and he said, and even us who are Jews, because we have not kept the law, are all guilty before God. Now what you need to understand is that this idea for the Jew that they are condemned, that they need a, is this is a revolutionary concept. Now you can argue it shouldn't have been because all through the Old Testament, there's passage after passage after passage connecting Jesus as the coming Messiah, and they should have been aware, and they should have understood what was happening. But the circumstances of the day, living under the Roman rule, they were looking for a political savior, not a spiritual savior. They're looking for someone to be a political king, 
They're not looking for someone to be Lord of their life. And this idea that they even needed a Lord is surprising and shocking to them. And, and they are struggling with this information. Matter of fact, remember um, the beginning of chapter 3, Paul asked the question for him and said, what advantage then is there even to having been a Jew if it didn't get us to heaven? And remember he answered, well, you guys had the greatest advantage because you had the Word of God. You had so much more information than anybody around you had. You had the prophets. You guys had a huge advantage. Uh, You just didn't understand what you were hearing. Okay, I think we got last time, if I'm not mistaken, through verse 20, or through verse 19. Does that sound right? Somewhere in there, yes? yes. No? Okay, all right. Let's start, let's start in verse 20, and uh, we'll see what we get to tonight. Verse 20, therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. What do you think he means when he says that? I'm, not, I'm never going to be righteous. I'm never going to be right with God by obeying the law, but instead, the law made me conscious of sin. What's he trying to say to them in this moment? Okay, so, all right. I was just so going to say the, uh, the law showed them what was right and wrong. Yeah, the law showed them and that they couldn't, they couldn't uh, live up to it. Okay. All right, so, let, right, so let's go there, and, and that's right. So let me, but let me come back to this one that we said right here, because I want to be sure we get this one nailed down a little bit. So the idea that they didn't have the Holy Spirit and didn't necessarily know right from wrong, we're a little off on, on that one. So here's, here's the idea. You, you and I have met people who don't know God and yet are highly moral. Is this true? Okay. Matter of fact, you and I would even talk about people who might be part of a religious group that would say, that religious group does not even understand Jesus whatsoever. And yet, some of the people within that group live remarkable lives and almost in some ways put Christians to shame sometimes. So where does that moralism come from for those people? How does a non-believing, non-Christian person have morality? Yeah. I think there's the concept of, a, of God's resonance of what is true and what is not true. I think that's the theory that we all have, a, you know, the rocks cry out. Everyone has a sense of what God is hmm. and what holiness is, regardless of whether you believe or not. Where did that come from? The idea of God came from God. How do you know that? Observation. Observation, okay. Creation. Where in creation? Every single thing. What do we say over here? Likeness of God. Boom. Remember, what did God say? Let us create man in our image. Right? And, and, and it even goes on if they say understanding right and wrong. The, what you got to get, God, when God said, I'm going to create man in our image, it wasn't that he said, hey, I'm going to give him a beard like I've got a beard. That's not, right? God doesn't have a physical image. So what does he mean when he says, I'm going to create man in my own image? You know, I'm going to create him as a self-aware being with a moral compass. That is the image of God placed in all of us. 
It, it's why, and you've heard me say this before, it's why a lion doesn't kill a gazelle and go, wow, I wonder why I did that. I'll bet you that gazelle had like maybe baby gazelles and I didn't even think about what's gonna happen to them now that mommy's gone. You know, no lion has ever asked that question. And yet you and I, we do all sorts of behaviors. You know, we, we honk at the guy in front of us in the car and then we feel kind of bad about having done it. Or maybe we don't feel bad because we morally reason in ourselves, he deserved it. But even that moral reasoning is something that's completely outside the capacity of an animal, right? That is the image of God in us, okay? When Adam falls, that image of God is scarred. It's skewed. In other words, the, the original image of God, the original conscience, if you want to call it that, that was placed in Adam, when he falls, that original image is changed, and it's changed in a darkening way so that our consciences are not as pure as Adam's conscience was pure, and our consciences are not as aware as Adam's conscience was aware. But you and I still retain that image of God, every human being. It's why men create religion, because there's something inside of them that says, there is a God, and there is right and wrong, and I need to figure it out, okay? It is that image of God in us. So, back to real quick, back to the statement we made, and I'll get you, we'll get there. So, people who don't have Christ in them have a little C conscience, okay? It's the image of God. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit takes what you and I would call our conscience and turns it into big C. And isn't that true? I mean, don't you look back from the moment you came to Christ and all of a sudden you go, crumb. Man, things that didn't used to bother me, they bother me. I feel, I feel so bad about that. And isn't it true that even as you go further in your Christian walk, all of a sudden you go, oh, I'll bet you that's not the right type of movie anymore. Well, where's that coming from? Because the Holy Spirit is taking that original image of God and he's beginning to restore it inside of you and it starts to become big C conscience. Okay, makes sense? All right, question back there. Uh, the other thing too is that that makes Satan's deceit in the uh, garden all that much more deceitful because the tree wasn't the knowledge of good and evil. They already had that. Yeah. Um, it was just all of a sudden now they're guilty. Yeah, the only knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve get is what is it like to be on the wrong side of evil? Right, the guilt. What is it like to have distance from God? So and it was exactly what Satan always does. It's always a half-truth, right? It's always a partial truth that he deceives us with on the deal. But yeah, huge consequence in the day. All right, real quick, and then we've got to go. Back to your question about the law. I yeah. think the law highlights the inability of man to work their way towards God because of our inability to fulfill the law completely. And yeah. therefore, it highlights the depravity and the sin that we inherently have and our need for a Savior. There you go. So here, and, and you're hitting it right on. So here's what, here's, let's go back and read the verse because we got off and talked some other things. Let's go back because this is a big point. Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather through the law we became uh, uh, conscious of our sin. So in other words, you realize the law was unbelievable. Uh, 
and it was impossible if you were to take all the commands of the law and try to fulfill all the commands of the law. There was just no way you did it, and so you would fail in one, and you'd fail in another, and you'd fail in another. And the very purpose of the law was never to get a man to heaven. The purpose of the law was to help them understand that they were failing to get to heaven. That they were, remember the term? Falling short. So it's as if you shot an arrow at a target, and the arrow fell short of the target. And the purpose of the law was as they tried to live up to the law, as they tried to be perfect, it was to demonstrate to them, you can't. There is no one you know, and there is no one around you who is making that everybody is falling short of the law. And the wonder and the, and the blessing of having the law for them was to prepare their hearts for the need of a Savior. They should have, when Jesus came and said, I'm the one who rescues from sin, been thrilled out of their minds because they had spent years falling short of the law. Now, when you and I get caught up in doing good things and trying to keep lots of good commandments, and when we know in our hearts that we haven't really done as much as we should do, what's the most intuitive thing we do as a person in that moment? Somewhere it's like, yeah, I, I know, I, I know I could be a better father, or I know I could be a better husband, or I know I could be a better citizen, or I, and, and what, do, what do we do in that moment to kind of salve our consciences? Huh? There you go. We compare ourselves to you. And we go, boy, compared to you, I'm pretty good. And that's what we do. We begin, we find somebody who is falling shorter of the law. And we begin to say, well, I mean, oh, no, I, 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 I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying I'm way better than Fred. I mean, Fred is, Fred's pretty bad. And I, I am, so I, I got to be in pretty good stead because, I mean, I'm way ahead of him. And the problem is, watch this, the problem is instead of looking to God and saying, how do I stand before a perfect God, because that would be a terrifying conversation. I now turn this way, I turn my back away from God and begin to compare myself with Fred, and I go, boy, compared to Fred, I, I mean, I'm in pretty good shape. This is exactly the trap that the Jewish people are caught in when Jesus comes as Savior. They're caught in a trap of comparing themselves and especially to the Romans, <laughs> and the barbarians around him. So think about what just happened in the first couple chapters of Romans. When Paul says to them, hey, remember the heathens, those guys are in trouble, they need, and they're going, oh yeah. And then they go, you know, you know those real moralistic Romans and they've got their gods of Zeus and Apollo and Jupiter? Yeah, th those guys are in trouble. And the Jews go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then Paul says, and guess what? And you Jews who have not kept the law, you're in trouble. And the Jews go, oh, whoa, 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 Paul, I think you got this wrong. Okay? And you get the struggle that they're facing. This is, this is turning everything they believed upside down in this moment. All right, here we go. Verse 21. But, but, and this moment, everything turns. Everything changes in the conversation. But... The heathens are in trouble, the moralist is in trouble, the Jew is in trouble, but now a righteousness from God apart 
from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now think what he just said. He said there's a righteousness that comes apart from the law and in actuality, you should have known this because the law and the prophets already foretold you that this righteousness, this Lamb of God, this payment for the sins of the world was coming for you. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. All right, we'll wait to get to that. All right. So this faith, this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. What's redemption besides a big Bible word? What's redemption? Paid the price. What's another way of saying it? Setting sinners free. What was it? He restored. What? Cash it in. Redeemed. That would be a good definition of redemption. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh? Return to its previous position. And the sense of it, and you guys, all, all of that is there. All of, all of what you're saying has the, almost the reflections off the crystal of redemption. The, the basic concept here is of buying back. How many of you have ever lived in California? Okay. So if you've lived in California, you realize that about half the things you buy in the grocery store, they charge you this, like, redemption fee. And uh, so then you have to pay more for, like, your sodas because they're in a can. And you leave, and then the only way you get that back is if you bring your soda cans back. And then they redeem the fee that you paid on the soda cans. I mean, you, you, yes? People are looking at me, no. I'm telling you, California, this, this is what they do. Okay, so, so this is this idea of redemption. It's the idea of buying back. And the idea is, and, and guys, Bible scholars have argued this and fought over this, and I, you know, what happened there in the garden when Adam sins, when we've sinned, did, did Satan gain possession? Did we turn the pink slip over to him? Did, is it somehow buying back that way? I, I, I don't know that I can get there. I'm not sure that, you know, God in heaven was, you know, handing off a payment to Satan. I probably lean a little more on the idea that the, that the payment or the redemption was a moral one. In other words, it was almost like there was a moral vacuum. There was a moral dent in the universe because of our sin. And God had to repay it somehow. And the, cho and the choice was simple. It was either you repaid it yourself, which meant eternity without God. It meant hell. Or somebody was going to have to pay that price for us. Hence a Savior. This, this term redeemed 
is the buying back of you and me. It's the paying the price that we owed. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. What's he referring to in that moment when he says a sacrifice of atonement? Anybody know? A sin offering. In Jewish law, you had to go, oh, here we go, all right, there you go. Yeah, isn't the, uh, a sin, when you sin, a cost of that sin is you blood is shed. Yes. Am I right? So that redemption is your sin is being bought back with the blood of Jesus Christ. Yep. Absolutely. So here's, here's how that references out. So here we go. It says, it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. So you need to get this picture because if you had lived in Jewish culture, what, what Paul just said is vibrant. Here's why because there was a feast called the Day of Atonement. And what you would do on the Feast of the Day of Atonement is you would take the very best lamb out of your flock. Uh, You would stake it out and you would have to leave it outside for a period of time to make sure it didn't have any disease, didn't have any mental disorder. And then on the Day of Atonement, you had to bring that lamb to the temple. And as you came to the temple, uh, you would then be met with a priest there at the altar They would take your lamb, place it on the altar, and you placed your hand on their head, and while your hand was there, the priest would slit the throat of the baby lamb. You had brought the lamb as an atonement for your sins. That's an interesting thing because you had to do it again every year. Every year you had to bring another lamb because the lamb did not have the capacity to actually take your sin away. So what was the point of the Day of Atonement? The point of the Day of Atonement was you demonstrating the faith that said, I know I have sin, and I know that blood must be shed for my sin, and I am living by faith for the day that the lamb will die for my sin. So you would go every year, and you would reestablish that. You would reaffirm your faith and belief that one day the Lamb would die for you. And it was as if, uh, during that period of time, that God would say, as long as you demonstrate that faith, then I'll kind of blink my eyes. I'll, I'll not put you in judgment yet, because you've said to me, I want you to wait for the Lamb. Okay? I bring the lamb for the day of atonement. So read the passage again. You ready for this? So remember, on the day of atonement, the Jews would bring their own lamb. They'd put their hand on the head, and the priest would slit the throat, saying, I know the lamb has to die for me. God presented him, presented who? Jesus as a sacrifice, as a sacrificial lamb of atonement. And he's saying it's God that put Jesus on the cross. 
No, no matter what the Romans did, no matter what happened politically that day. Remember, remember uh, I think it's when Pilate looks at Jesus and says, hey, aren't you going to talk back to me? Aren't you going to defend yourself? Don't you realize I have the power to kill you? And Jesus looks back at him and says, you would have no power except, what's the next words? My heavenly Father gave you that power. And Scripture here says it's God that sent Jesus to the cross, that you and I would be able to place our hands on the Lamb and say, that's my sacrifice. That's my sacrifice. That was the day of atonement. And all of a sudden, the Jews hearing this realize what Paul is saying. You, you've spent a thousand years waiting for this day, for the day the lamb would die for you. And you should have seen it. You should have understood it when it happened. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Remember we said blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Remember that dent, that moral dent in the universe that had to be repaired? Because in his forbearance, in his restraint, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So all these Old Testament saints who are coming every single year and they're bringing that lamb as an act of faith that one day God, and God says, as long as you bring the lamb, then I will let you wait for the lamb. It's an interesting thing because if you stop and think about it, you and I become Christians by looking back to the cross. Old Testament saints became believers by looking forward to the cross, even though they didn't totally understand the cross. What they understood was the Lamb, that the Lamb would die and shed its blood one day for them. You and I have a little bit clearer picture because we realize how it happened. So everybody who has come to God has always come through the cross for all time. It's why, guys, I'm just going to say, it's why no man-made religion that wants you to be a good person or get baptized in their church or do whatever they ask you to do and confess whoever they ask you to confess, it's why no man-made religion that does not make the cross the entry point for God can get you there. Yeah. That's you, Earl. Although I told him to turn the microphone off on you. Is it on now? Yeah, it's okay. on now. Clear this thing up a little bit about Satan because I remember something about uh, the Jews. Uh, Christ was telling them they were uh, the children of Satan, and uh, in the garden, uh, Satan's seed was evidently the people who were not going to be believers. So uh, Satan must have some big role in this. Uh. Sure. Yeah, matter of fact, Scripture calls Satan uh, the prince of the power of the air. And so there, there has to surely be some sense 
Remember, remember when God, and I don't want to spend too long on this, but remember when God created uh, Adam and Eve, and he said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you authority over every living thing. Remember that? And there seems to be a sense in which Adam fell that he gave that authority away. And remember, immediately God said, okay, it's not going to be the same. You're now going to earn your way by the sweat of your brow. There's going to be thorns and thistles. Eve, you're going to have all sorts of pain and shame. All of, this, all of this thing that God gave to us changed in that moment when Adam sins, and apparently the authority of this earth shifted place in that moment as they did that. And that therefore it calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Uh, and so he surely has an awful lot of involvement in it. Okay? All right. Um, verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Not in Muhammad, not in Buddha, in Jesus. And guys, here's why, here's why I'm taking us through this and trying to make sure it drills down in us. Because if this is accurate, if what Paul is saying here, that the only hope of reaching God, the only hope of our sins being taken care of is Jesus and his death on the cross, it means that you and I have the most compelling and most important story ever in the history of the world. And it is up to us to be sure the world hears the story. Because without it, they die trying to be good people, but never being good enough. What then, or where then, verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? In other words, he says, if, if this is true, if salvation comes not by being a good person, but if salvation comes by admitting I'm not a good person and going to the lamb and saying, I need the lamb to die for me, how would you boast about that? How would you ever brag about that? And that's why he says, where's boasting once you understand how to become a Christian? You couldn't brag because becoming a Christian is really in some ways giving up being religious giving up trying to be good enough and admitting you're not. So how would you boast? So where is boasting? It's excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law. So he says if, if you were getting to heaven by being good, you could probably boast. You could probably say, hey, I'm such a great person, that's why I'm going. No, but on faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now again, guys, stop and think a second. He's talking to a group of Jewish people who have believed they were going to heaven by being good Jews. And this is just absolutely ripping their universe to shreds. They are upside down with this new information. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, since there is only one God, which means God must have created Gentiles just as surely as he created Jews. So he would be the God of 
all of us. Who will justify the circumcised? Who will justify the circumcised by faith? And you ready? And the uncircumcised through that same faith. Now again, you got to understand this is this is just mind-blowing information. You're going, wait, 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 wait. You, you're telling me that, that all this observing the law, all this stuff we've doing, you're telling me that that was only to tell me that I couldn't make it to God, and suddenly Gentiles can get to heaven by faith the same way the Jewish nation can get to heaven by faith. And when you begin to kind of process, you begin to understand why the Jewish nation had such a hard time with Jesus and why this was such a struggle to reverse the way they had been thinking in their minds all the way up until then. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law by faith? In other words, we just said the law was worthless. Did we say the law didn't matter? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Matter of fact, we said the law was right. The law was accurate when it said we weren't good enough. The law, the law was dead on when it said you fall short. And it's in response to that that faith becomes essential for us. Did I see a hand? Yes, no, no, okay, all right. All right, we made it through chapter three. Are we blazing like crazy? This is mind-boggling. This may be the millennial falcon of Bible studies right now. All right, chapter four, starting verse one. Oh, we did have one, okay. Lynn. Yeah. We were talking about the lamb for atonement. Isn't there somewhere back in probably the first five books uh, that the Jewish people needed to bring in two goats or something, and one goat was sent out with their sins on it, and the other was used for atonement? Yeah, so what they would call is they would call it the scapegoat. But, but actually, it's an interesting thing because the scapegoat was actually the one that was considered the sins were on, and the scapegoat was released in the wilderness to go die. So, but yeah, they did. There was that moment in which they had the scapegoat that would go. Okay, now the second question is, we're studying all this today. The Jewish faith today has to know this. Yeah. And yet they don't come to this today. Yeah. And, and so that's a great question. Why, why would somebody of Jewish descent today not read this and go, oh my goodness? Well, it's, it's the same reason that you and I would maybe look at some other faith or religion and go, you know, I think that's just a sect. I think that's just a cult, right? And so you discount it rather than explore it. And the reality is the vast majority of Jewish people would have never read and never studied for themselves in order to see the things that you and I are talking about, and they haven't done it. The second thing that's happened so much with Jewish people, matter of fact, you're gonna, if, we're taking a trip to Israel uh, in February, and those of you that go on the trip with us, uh, you're gonna discover that, that Judaism in our present culture for the vast, vast, vast majority of Jews has now become nationalism. So it's almost the same way in which someone would say, hey, are you an American? Yeah, I'm an American. Oh, I'm a Jew. It, it's not a religious thing. It's a national thing. It's a birth thing for them. And so you'll find that the vast, vast, vast majority of Jews are not what you and I would consider practicing Jews because they're Jewish only by birth. They're not Jewish by practice. And you have to get all the way into the Orthodox Jews before you actually get into Jews by practice. And now you're down to probably about 4% of the population at that point. Yep. 
Didn't, isn't it somewhere, I think, in Ephesians where um, it says that God uh, put a, a film or something, you know, blinded the Jews from uh, uh, the truth of Jesus until all the Gentiles were in? Gentiles meaning uh, uh, people who were uh, us. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think it says necessarily to put a film or withheld it. No, he does say if you reject, then God's going to go deal with the Gentile. So, so, all right, so let me give you just a real... So this is a moment of an end-time conversation. How many are interested in a momentary end-time conversation? Okay, pretty good number. All right. All right, so here's, here's what happens. Okay, so let's, we'll just do this real quick. So an interesting thing happens when Jesus... So this is going to be the manger, Okay. There you go, manger, little arms. Okay, so Jesus is born on earth, comes to earth. If you go through the earliest part of the ministry of Jesus, uh, if you read Matthew, I think it's all the way up to about chapter 13 of Matthew, over and over and over again, when Jesus is teaching the Jews, he says to them, you ready for this? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now think about that statement for a minute. The kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. Well, who was the king? Jesus. Okay? And if they would have accepted, think about this for a second, if they would have accepted Jesus as their king, now here's the deal. They did one time try to accept Jesus as king, but they tried to accept him as a political king, not the king of their hearts, not the savior of their souls. And you understand the difference, right? Jesus was not ready to be a political king. He had no aspirations to be a political king. He wanted to be the Lord of their hearts. He wanted to be the king of their souls. But he says to them, the kingdom of heaven's right in front of you. Do you want it? You get, uh, I think it's to Matthew chapter 14. I'll have to go back and look. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, he stands in front of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say to him, hey, wait a minute, you just cast out those demons. You did those demons by Beelzebub. And uh, Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting ready to commit a really grievous sin. Matter of fact, Scripture calls it the unpardonable sin. Uh, that, that you would stand in this moment and say what you just said, that I just cast out demons by the power of Satan. You realize that moment, it's the rulers of Israel looking at the Lamb of God and saying, you're not the Lamb of God, and rejecting the Lamb of God. From that day forward, Jesus begins to teach a different, he never again says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that day forward, Jesus begins to preach and say, the Son of God must die. I've been rejected. We're going to do a plan B. I'm going to a cross. Now, if Israel had accepted him, I don't, I don't know how that story works out because there still had to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. All I'm telling you is, is that in the early ministry of Jesus, the kingdom was offered and the kingdom was rejected. That when Jesus goes to the cross, something new happens. It's called the church. And for this period of time that you and I live in right now, God has set the Jew to the side, and he is now dealing with the Gentile. It's called the church, this assembly of believers that we are part of. When does the church end? Who knows? When does the church age end? Rapture. 
So when the rapture happens, Jesus comes and meets us in the clouds. All of you and I who are Christians go to meet him, which means all the Christians are taken off the earth. Guess who's left? The Jews. To go through a seven-year period called the tribulation. And matter of fact, here, here's just an interesting side note, and then we'll get off this. If you read the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel says this, from the time that the Jewish people go into captivity in Babylon, it will be 69 weeks of years until the Messiah comes. If you take and measure from the time that they went into captivity, the death of Jesus Christ measures to the day. It says, then there'll be a pause, and then there will be one more week of years. Guess what the pause was? You and me, the church, guess what the last week of years is? A time called the tribulation. And during the tribulation, God will once again call the Jewish people to himself. Okay, there, all right. So we burned our brains. Everyone's going, oh! Okay, all right. We're actually doing an end time series in January, so it will, it'll be fun. Okay. All right, so back, back to this. Okay. Uh, verse, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is going to get really, really cool if, okay, I need you to keep thinking about this through Jewish eyes because he's still having a conversation with Jewish people and helping them understand that salvation has come, okay? So try to put on your Jewish thinking here. All right, here we go. Chapter 4. How much time do I have? 20 minutes. All right, that would be just about enough. All right, here we go. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? What matter? The matter that the law couldn't get you to heaven, but faith could. And he says, well, what did Abraham discover according to this matter? Now, why is it a big deal that Paul brings up Abraham to Jews? He's their forefather. Who is the beginning of the Jews? Abraham. It's Abraham who received the promise. It's Abraham who is the father of the Jews. So by going back to Abraham, it's like Paul is pulling out the biggest gun in his holster and saying, what did Abraham teach us about this idea of faith getting us to God and not the law? Okay? Here we go. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When did Abraham believe God? Anybody remember the story of Abraham? When does Abraham believe God and get credited for righteousness? Okay, it's before he has the son. Okay, God calls him out of Ur, so you're getting closer. He gets to the land that God is showing him. All right, grab your Bibles. Here we go. You guys are, you guys, see, you guys are now, you're guessing. <laughs> okay, grab your Bibles. Go with me to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. 
Okay, here we go. It's Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very good reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, uh, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. So my servant is going to end up inheriting all of my wealth because I don't have any children to leave it to. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will become my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, you shall, all, you shall your offspring be like the stars of the heavens. Ready? Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Paul goes back to a story that every Jew knows, and he says, how was your forefather Abraham made righteous? And he says, wasn't it when he believed God? Wasn't it when Abraham had faith that the Bible said he became righteous because he believed that God was true and that what God had promised would happen? And the Jew has to sit in the moment and go, you know, I, I didn't think about that. I've told that story to my children a hundred times and never stopped to realize that Abraham was credited righteousness based on faith. And now the Jewish mind is swimming. Now it's turning. Go back to Romans. <clears throat> Verse 2 again. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works for his wages, he's not given credit to him as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, if Abraham had done something to earn this, the Bible wouldn't have said that it was credited to him. It would have said it was his just desserts, his wages, for having been a good man. Now, verse 4. When a man works for his wages, he's not credited as him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay? So, right, so what Paul's saying is, God, God, guys, the scripture that you all know, the story that you all tell your children should have told you that it has always been an issue of faith and not an issue of works to get somebody to heaven. Now he shifts a gear. Ready? Verse 6. David says, why is it a big deal that Paul is pulling out David? He pulled out Abraham. Now he's pulling out David. Why is that a big deal for the Jews? Why? The promise, the Messiah is promised through David. That would surely be part of it. David was a man after God's own heart. 
He was a king, and he wasn't just a king, he was their favorite king. This is like saying to the American people, well, what did Abraham Lincoln say? Uh, you know, this is, this is a guy who's held in huge esteem in their history, okay? So verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of a man to whom God, what's the next word? Credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. In other words, he earned it, he deserved it, but God chose not to count it against him. He credited him with righteousness. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Okay, so here's what he said. Just think about this moment. He's just said to the Jew, wait, 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 wait. Your two biggies, you're the two important guys in your history. Abraham, the founding father of your faith, how did he get righteous before God? God credited him righteousness. How did David, your favorite king, tell you that men were blessed and given righteousness? It's when God did not count their sins against them. So this has always been an issue of faith, Paul says. And so now the Jew says, wow, I, I hadn't seen that. I didn't understand that. And if that weren't enough to blow their minds, he's about to say to them, and guess what? Faith doesn't just work for Jews. Faith works for everyone. So here we go. Nine, verse nine. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Okay, who is the circumcised referring to? The Jews. Why does the circumcised refer to the Jews? Okay, so the covenant with Abraham was that they had to be circumcised. Every Jew did. And you need to know that if you go back in time culturally, it wasn't like today where you circumcised a lot of the boys because it was a hygienic thing and all of that. No male got circumcised. The idea of putting a knife anywhere near, it, it just was not even thought of, okay? So I'm just telling you, the only guys who were circumcised were Jews. There were no circumcised Gentiles. It was only Jews. And this circumcision thing was an absolute picture. It was an absolute giveaway. This guy's a Jew because Jews were the only ones who were keeping the covenant and getting circumcised, okay? So when you hear that, circumcision is always a Jew. Is the blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, for the Gentile? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him for righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited to him? In other words, when did Abraham get his righteousness? Was it after he was circumcised or was it before? Now, why is that a big deal? Why is it a big deal if Abraham became righteous before he was circumcised and not after? It would give the Jews an argument. Why would it give the Jews an argument if he was righteous after circumcision? It would mean maybe that circumcision led to the righteousness. Okay, and you ready for this? Circumcision was the first order of the law. The first law given to the Jews was circumcision. 
It's not that the Ten Commandments don't come around for another 400 years. Circumcision was the first law given to the Jews. So if Abraham is justified before the first law even came into being, it would be absolutely obvious that righteousness came before the law. Grab your Bibles. Go with me again to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. We're just going to read it again real quick. Abraham believed the Lord. It was credited to him for righteousness. Right? Guess when circumcision comes? Turn the page. Chapter 17, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you must be circumcised. So Abraham was righteous even before the first command of the law came into being. And suddenly the Jew says, oh my. Back to Romans. Which means, think about this, Abraham was made righteous before he was actually technically a Jew. Because he still hadn't been circumcised yet. Oh, now hands went up. Okay. All right. Yep. We keep turning that microphone off. It's on now. How did Abraham know what circumcision was? Was it a common practice at that time? No, God probably had to give him an owner's manual. <laughs> I, I, I've got a feeling in Scripture it may have left out some of the detailed information that was passed on yeah, to Abraham in, in that process. Yeah. I think I'm just curious why circumcision was even like brought up. Why is... <laughs> I don't know how to word it, but why is That's because it... you're a girl. No, I'm, I'm Why teasing. is it that why they base it off of? Huh? Why is it something they would base it off of is being circumcised? Yeah, so... Why and, is that the key detail? Yeah, and, and here's the deal. I don't, I don't know that we know exactly why God chose this idea of circumcision. Uh, one is surely that it was so culturally abnormal that any male who had that done would have... You would never have done it accidentally, right? <laughs> So, so it, it, it was a clear setting apart thing that those males were doing to say, I am set apart to God. Others have kind of uh, surmised that the cutting away of the flesh is supposed to be symbol symbolic of I'm cutting myself away from kind of the fleshly world, this world, and I'm setting myself apart. I, I don't know if, you know if you want to go there or not. All I know is... If you were a Jewish male and circumcised, it made you highly unusual in this culture. It was a setting apart thing. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me, uh, uh, another 
beautiful truth in that the gospel message of Genesis 15 is uh, God reminds Abraham that prior to his being chosen and called, he was actually an idol worshiper. By in verse seven, he says, "Let me remind you, I brought you out of Ur, yeah. where he and his father were sun worshippers." Yeah. So Abraham was a Gentile. Abraham was not a Jew. He was just a nomad. Yep. So it could not have any bearing on any type of spiritual foundation for a right relationship with God. It had to be done by God. And you mentioned a few minutes ago that the law came 400 years later. And that's when Paul told the churches at Galatia that Genesis 15, just like Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, was the first declaration of the gospel message. And the law could, that gospel was a covenant. The law could not disannul a covenant by God, otherwise God would not be holy. And it's, it's something that should have humbled everyone to hear Genesis 15, 7. Because that's why Jesus told um, the Jews and the Judaizers in his day that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Hmm. Yep. And, and, and it was the pride that denied them the ability to see the truth just as it is today. Yeah. And God wiped Abraham from any pride when he said, remember, I've called you up out of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans. There was nothing righteous in you when I first started working with you. Yeah, I think, I think the whole idea of God calling Abraham out of Ur, and it's a great point that you make that he, that he was an idol worship even when, even when God began to work in his life, is a reminder to you and me that if anybody out there would have even the faintest inkling toward God, God is gonna reach toward that person. God is not gonna leave that person in the dark who has even the slightest urging toward him. He's gonna go find a way to get the word to him, to get the message to that person, so that they have the opportunity to make a decision about Christ. It's part of why we send missionaries. It's why we go to our neighbors, um, because God sends us to go do that. All right, any quick questions? Because we're basically, I think, out of time. Was that yes? Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, I have a quick question on the circumcision thing. I always think it's funny, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, when Adam and Eve sin, he says, you're gonna cover yourself up and, and stuff, and no longer you run around naked. Um, so then fast forward, you show people that you're a Jew by getting circumcised. How common was that that you walked around being like, look, I'm Jewish, and then lifting oh. up? I mean, it, it seemed like it would be more easy to like pierce your nose or yeah, I, exactly. I and again, I don't, I don't know, um, I, I don't know, I, I how how in the world that would have been. You know, the, the truth is there would have been a lot of other identifying marks once the law kind of gets in place because the men began to not shave, so the Jews would have all had very full beards, which uh, you realize, especially by the time you get to the Roman time, is very non-cultural. You know, the, the Romans tend to be all cliche-shaven or cutting their hair short, and the Jews are all walking around with um, Duck Dynasty beards, you know, going on. So, um, but yeah, I agree with you. How, you know, how, how did that become the thing that was noted? And they surely weren't lifting their robes and doing that. But it was. It was an identifying mark that could not be removed. If they got around to the time of marrying, was there some sort of an examine? I don't know. I, I don't know. But it... It was irreversible, let's just put it that way. Yeah. 
I have a quick question. Um, I should have asked it earlier, but you said okay. that God presented Jesus as the lamb. Yes. So are the Jews responsible for his death? Yeah. Okay. So are we. Remember, so here's, here's a great moment, guys, and we miss this so often. When, when John the Baptist is baptizing, okay, so think about this. The Jews are spending their entire lives taking a lamb to the temple to kill it, knowing that someday God will provide the lamb, right? You understand the principle. There's this symbolic thing they're doing, knowing that one day God will provide the lamb. When John the Baptist is baptizing, and when Jesus walks up to John the Baptist, what does John the Baptist say out loud to everybody there? Behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist just out, out said, everything you've been waiting for, everything you've been believing, just walked up. Behold the Lamb of God. And they should have got it. Yep. Yep. I wanted to say something about the circumcision. I think it has something to do with the seed coming from Eve. And so um, that's where the sperm comes from. So the seed is Christ. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. That one. We're, all right, one last one because we're done with time and then people are going to start throwing things. All right. Re regarding, regarding the question about the Jews' responsibility for for the crucifixion. Yeah. Uh, Luke said, in, in the book of Luke, we read that, that Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know sure. not what they do. Yeah. And so, yes, responsible, but forgiven, just like us. Yeah. You know, they, when, when, um, when Pilate says to them, hey, I find no fault in him, the, the Pharisees say to him, then let, let the responsibility be on us and on our seed, right? And then to your point, and a great point, Jesus says, hey, Father, forgive them. They do not know. They don't understand. They, and they don't realize they've just put the Messiah on the cross. They don't realize they just put the Son of God on the cross. And there's a sense in which, guys, at the end of the day, every one of us is responsible for Jesus on the cross. And, and guys, here's the part that ought to just blow our brains. If you, if you were the only person who would ever have faith in Jesus, he would have still gone to the cross. If you were the only person who would ever have saving faith, Jesus would have gone to the cross for you. So at the end of the day, I'm responsible. It's my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It's your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Because the only way to take care of my sin was the blood sacrifice. All right, it's been good. All right, let's pray and we'll be done. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for this time we've been together. Thanks for the opportunity uh, to study your word. God, again, would you just drive it deep? Would you help us to, to grasp and to understand, and more than that, God, to live it and to use it? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.